Hello. Hello. All right. Hello, Jack. Dan, what are we doing? We are God damn once it. again <laughs> on a Tuesday. On a Tuesday? Uh, oh, I see what you mean. That's <laughs> like, no. Yeah. We're reading more capital. Aren't we, we are indeed. We're back. This tome. Um, Dan, because I always get it wrong. Why don't we you are, tell us what we read? <laughs> I don't know. We're reading part section one, part four. Section one. What does it? What does the translation of the fetishism of commodities and the secret thereof? Ooh, you know, I'll tell you what, Dan. It's an, it's a um, wonderful, compelling title. It is, and I'll tell you what, Marx was feeling himself in this, wasn't he? He was, he was, fun, he was going fun. off on this one. He, uh, you tell he was very excited by this, and I got the feeling that when he like finished writing it, he just put down his pen and went, "God damn it, I'm smart. <laughs> I'm a genius." <laughs> Yeah, this one written very differently to the past uh, past capital stuff we've read, mm-hmm. and um, as our um, guiding light, David Harvey notes, there's a reason for that, and I found that very interesting. Perhaps, maybe, maybe this is just hindsight saying the reason. But um, before we kind of get into all of the uh, stuff that he's talking about, I think it is it, it's worth noting that like this is written in a much less uh, accountant style. I suppose, and it is a little bit more. Harvey kind of tries to play it up and being like, "This is much more literary than his other stuff because he's trying to match what he's talking about, and because this is so immaterial and so like kooky and crazy and like, whoa, dude, he's writing in a much more grandiose way." Um, I thought that was neat. Feeling himself is the way I would phrase it. Yeah, mm. Harvey seems to suggest that it's just one of these tactics that Marx wants to deploy, where he just sort of changes his writing style over yeah. and over again. Um, I mean, I have no reason to disagree with that, although it seems like a little bit of like reading method into madness yeah. <laughs> just a little yes. bit just a little bit um he was excited i think that's yeah, yeah it comes yeah, across yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, harvey also points out that this in the ver- i think it in the very first edition this didn't appear in the place where it currently appears i think it may well have been an appendix in the mm. very first edition and then was put in this place mm. but in the second edition what given that this book's probably had like a million editions <laughs> probably means like a year after it was published for the first time mm. so it's not um it is in its in, it is in its intended place and we shouldn't look too much into it being <laughs> like a weird addendum that sort of like sits out of step yeah but it is a brief respite or it is a yeah. respite i don't know how brief yeah. um in the otherwise linen in the, coats in, and... the, in the, the, the linen and the coats and the, the various <laughs> different um, various different forms of value and the, yeah, as you God, say yeah. the accountant's style yeah, yeah. is disposed of yeah. in favor of a slightly more literary style yeah there's a lot more necromancy and necromancy this. and almost wizards there's magic yes, when he right. said necromancy and wizards i was like what that's <laughs> <laughs> like here we go is this the yeah exactly i was like i've been waiting for this <laughs> um so real quick just to kind of maybe explain a little bit more as to why he was writing like this he this is basically uh commodity fetishism and we'll get into what this exactly means but it's the idea of like our laboring activities do not take the form of like really like people interacting with each other once they get taken to the market it takes the form of uh our social relations kind of take the form as relationship between things and not between people but marx basically says in order to talk about this we can't talk about coats and linen because it's not a super material thing he says in order therefore to find an analogy we must have recourse to the mist enveloped regions of the religious world and i don't think he's saying that as like a devout like quaker or anything he's not saying that as like a good thing he's saying that like since this is so immaterial and so crazy if we want to have a metaphor we have to look to something as superstitious as religion it's <laughs> like i have heard of he went a bit um um a bit early 2000s like <laughs> internet atheist 
have to look at something so dumb, <laughs> yeah, stupid. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Richard Dawkins. Um, I'm an atheist, mom. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Now you're just describing me when I was 13, Dan. So this uh, is, yeah, you're kind of insulting yeah, me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Me too. Um, me too. Yeah, by fetish here, what it's meant is an object which is imbued with mystical powers, mm. mystical powers which are have their origin in the activities of human beings, but are considered in the minds of these human beings to be um, properties of the object. Mm, to have fantastical powers. Fantastical powers. Yeah. The object in this instance, of course, is the commodity. Yes. Um, I will say the thing that made me understand what he means by fetishism, did you ever read Tintin? Dan, when you were growing up. Uh, I'm sort of familiar, but no, not, not in any great there, deal. Today. There's one, it's called The Broken Ear, and it's all about Tintin traveling to like um, some unnamed country in South America and finding something called the Arumba Fetish, which is like this little tiny wooden statue of a god or whatever. And it's supposedly like the tribes who like own this fetish, like believe it to have these powers of like, that like maybe someone in the Christian religion would believe like someone's finger, like some saint's finger would have. Like it doesn't necessarily have to be like, you know, Oh, these primitive tribes. It's like a cross has fetishistical powers. Mm -hmm. or, um, yeah. Or a commodity, indeed, as you're saying. A commodity which he says it could be quite, quite easy to mistake as being something uh, very trivial. Mm. And he's demanding that we look a bit closer to work out mm. what's really going on. Yeah. I mean, there's like the simple way that this is always explained, which Harvey kind of explains as being like the moralistic way of looking at commodity fetishism, right? Which is that like... He uses the example of lettuce, which I thought was very funny, which was like um, when you go and buy some lettuce, you have no interaction at all with the person who uh, grew the lettuce, who harvested the lettuce, who distributed the lettuce to wherever you're buying it. Really, the only interaction you're having is with the person who you're uh, giving your money to. So in that sense, um, the relationship that we have between the productive forces and you like consuming isn't uh, you and the person who made it. It's made the lettuce, harvested the lettuce. It's your money interacting with... Um, the lettuce, basically, these two commodities interacting with each other, which then kind of like has certain psychological impacts on you um, that Marx kind of gets into more so about like people who try to explain it, like bourgeois economic economists, economists, one might even say. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I think Marx is definitely trying to have a bit more of like a grounded, concrete um, why does this matter? Why does this happen? Not the like, you don't know who's making your shirts and that's bad because that is bad, but that's not really like his point, right? Yeah, it's bad, but it's um, it's a feature of the problem. It's not the problem. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's not that we need fairer exchange or fairer remuneration. Or... Yeah, fair distribution. It's not that we need to take greater interest in, as much as we are perhaps into um, local production of certain mm. oh. sort of like... Yes, we're into that. <laughs> um, certain products of the for our consumption mm, broad um, beans broad beans quite. <laughs> um that's not the solution to the problem yeah it isn't like you don't have to shake the hand of whoever made your clothes yeah that's not <laughs> marx's point or even if it were the case because he's also making the case that like um he, he says at one point that it is known to contemporary science which he by which he means well contemporary means the middle of the 19th yeah. century and science yeah. means uh political economy mm. The 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 so-called bourgeois political economists knew fully full well mm. that uh, the source of labor, the source of value in commodities, was the labor that went into those commodities. But um, that knowing full well doesn't change the uh, the nature of the mode of production. Just by knowing, you cannot sort of change the mode, nature of the mode of production. Mm. Similarly, just by just by shaking the hand of the person who produces <laughs> the thing doesn't necessarily remove um, the commodity fetishism. Mm. 
which results from the activity of producing production being done purely for exchange. Mm. But I think it's also it's also worthwhile bringing up at this point uh, an argument that you sort of discover in the David Harvey. Um, and also I went and read a little bit of Isaac Rubin's book on um, on uh, Marx's Labour Theory of Value mm. because he starts that book with like 50 odd pages on commodity fetishism or like sort of developing the idea, de- developing an explanation of uh, Marx's analysis of capitalism largely hinging on the back of uh, commodity fetishism. Mm. And what he says and what Harvey says is that it's very easy to mistake um commodity fetishism as being something which results from mm. Marx's analysis of capitalism kind of thing. It's, it could, you could read it as, um, particularly as there is this step change in how it's written, you could read it as um, a type of mystification that results from how capitalism operates um, rather than an essential mystification for the operation of capitalism itself. Sure. And I suppose the important part there is like, one might be inclined to think, well, it's the same as the same as the sort of fair trade argument, I suppose, yeah. or the yeah. ethical argument for um, a different type of relationship to production, mm. in that you 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 couldn't remove the mystification and still have the capitalist mode of production, mm. which is kind of what's being suggested by a fairer trade system kind of thing. Yeah, what Marx is calling the fetishism of commodities mm. is essential to the nature of commodity production. Yeah. under capitalism. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it really kind of um, made a lot of things click for me when he talks about just what this does to everyone's ideas around um, the economy. Like when you go to buy something and you're like, oh, the price has gone up. All these price fluctuations. It must clearly, just because my money is um, the only like really interaction I have with that change in value of these different goods is my money interacting with the lettuce that I'm buying. So clearly it must just be a price point problem with supply and demand. That's the only thing that could possibly be making these uh, these fluctuations in the price and the value. When Marx is saying no, it's like underlying like um, uh, uh, fluctuations in the actual value of something. And that like, because this is all mystified from your point of view, you just see these two commodities interacting, you don't see the actual productive process, then that just basically... Yeah, it does exactly what I've said. It makes it so that you don't see any of the productive processes happening and you don't see how the underlying like value is changing because you you aren't having a social interaction with anything beyond these two commodities just interacting with each other. And I thought that was really funny because it's like, wow, that's what every like modern economist <laughs> like thinks. It's like that's what everyone calling themselves an economist from like, you know, like Ben Shapiro all the way to like, you know, uh, like Milton Friedman's of the world or something like that. It's just, it takes labor completely out of the equation and it's just a, basically just, it's simple supply and demand. It's yeah, Econ yeah, 101. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah, what you're talking about. What Marx talks about is the analysis of price, which is the, yeah, the sort of exactly. primary concern of bourgeois yeah. political economy, as mm. he's describing it here. I mean, I mean that even that even finds its way into debates about planned economies, right? Because it's so many like... Um, Orthodox economists will go, well, you kind of can't have a planned economy without some kind of price point. You need a price point to determine the value of these goods. And like, that's such a big point behind commodity fetishism is that it's like, no, 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 you're being, uh, this is all a mystification because you don't actually see what's going on. That's not true. You don't, you know, to extrapolate from this, you don't need a price point to determine like uh, fluctuations with supply and demand um, to extrapolate a little bit further from there. True, that's true. Mm. 
I'm just going to make a quick point too, just about how depressing it is. The general idea of like you not being able to know the value of your labor, the true value of your labor until that product is taken to the market for exchange. Uh-huh. That depressed me so much. It's like, God, as if I couldn't be more alienated. I can only understand what the value of my labor is until the product is just taken to the market, you know, till the exchange actually happens. I was just like, that sucks. Mm-hmm. That makes me jeez. To, I suppose to link this idea of commodity fetishism to what has already proceeded in the, the mm. rest of the analysis in the other sections of capitalism, capital, mm. this fetishism of commodities results from the distinction between use value and exchange value in a lot of ways, and also mm. the distinction between abstract and concrete labor, sure. and also that what that results, the result of uh, the various different things that underlie, forms of exchange which underlie... Um, exchange value that we saw Mm. in section three Mm. um it's all about explaining this process of abstraction from the sort of like concrete activity of making a product Mm. and the production of the useful qualities of that product um that are part of the, the concrete labor and the use value that results and the the process whereby what becomes essential to the capitalist mode of production is not the usefulness of the products and the material quality, material mm. labor that's gone into them, the concrete labor that's gone into them, but the the exchange value of the products and the quantity of abstract labor that's gone into them. Yeah. Um, and therefore, you get to this point where you lose sight of the fact that what's being compared in the products of exchange is the quantity of labor that's gone into them. And rather, what you just see is... Um, their ability to exchange um, and the rates for which they exchange being something which is mistaken as being a product or a, a quality of the of the commodity itself kind of thing. Mm. Um, so that is to, to sort of to underlay or underline how much the commodity, the, the fetishism of commodities is essential to or is the essential next step in Marx explaining his understanding of capitalism kind of thing mm. and not something that's sort of like... Um, divorced from it i suppose Mm. um maybe i'll read this um this i call the fetishism which attaches itself to the products of labor as soon as they are produced as commodities and which is therefore inseparable from the production of commodities so there Mm. we go the fetishism of commodities is inseparable from the production of commodities in a Mm. capitalist economy and as we know like the production of commodities is the production of commodities for exchange rather than for personal use or even yeah even social use i suppose like, yeah because he does go on to try and explain in the, one of those rare moments of uh <laughs> that marks doing that thing which we're told he never does which is explain what socialism might be yeah, yeah, he, yeah, does, yeah. he does go on to try and extrapolate a sort of like um a vision of production which is um production for use but not for individuals but sort of like a social production yeah rather than a personal individual yeah i mean yeah to jump ahead a little bit (laughs) yeah that's yeah i suppose that's just kind of worth repeating this just the basic point of like this one of the biggest issues with capitalism is just the abstraction of like use value is not entirely connected obviously and i mean this is what he's been saying in his entire analysis of commodities use value of a commodity is not like the determining factor of its value and I mean, that's fairly obvious, but when you kind of like get that disconnect, um, yeah, obviously you wind up with things like yeah. fossil fuels being produced well past when they should and 
the opposite end of that. Blah 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 blah. Mm-hmm. The other thing that's lost, or the other the the other pertinent phrase, and the thing which is lost in this process, is the idea that there are social relations which underlay um, market exchange. Yeah. Which is basically just another way of sort of phrasing what we've already talked about, kind of thing. Mm. Um, but what I suppose um, socialists might be keen to uh, emphasize mm. is that there ought to to put back in picture, I suppose, that there are these sort of material social relations which underlie commodities, kind of thing. And um, it's, I suppose, through this mystification, one might also lose sight of all the social ills that result from this process of production sure. of commodities, kind of thing. Mm. Um, we would want to say that it, it is the. I mean, I, <laughs> I was I was about to say something. I was about to say <laughs> we would want to say that it is in fact the fault of the commodities that <laughs> there is this. There are um, there are inhuman social relations which produce them. <laughs> but that is a, that is, would be a form of commodity fascism, wouldn't it? I'm going to kick imbue the, the ass of every commodity I see. <laughs> to, to imbue the um, <laughs> imbue the commodity with that power of sort of like subjugating mm. those kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, by like, I suppose I'm slipping into the ethical argument here, so maybe this is just mm. incorrect, right? But mm. um, well, but we do want to have space for an ethical argument. Absolutely, right? it's only it's only that there isn't a resolution for the ethics, the the terrible ends of capitalism, which are which would fall foul of our ethics. Yeah, um, yeah. There isn't, there isn't a, there isn't a solution for those mm. internal to the capitalist mode of production kind of thing. Exactly, that result from the capitalist mode of production. Um, yeah, and we we you in this through this process of social of Commodity fetishism, you can lose sight of the the uh, social ills of capitalism, or at least how yeah. the social ills of capitalism result from um, this process of mm. um, the running an economy purely for the production of commodities. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, and I mean, what's the capitalist like liberal solution to commodity fetishism? It's what you like alluded to earlier. It's like the fair trade idea where it's like, okay, I know the coffee that I drink is destroying the rainforest. I know that the people who make it are like under borderline slave conditions. Um, I know it's all horrible, blah, 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 blah. What can we do to make uh, the consumers feel better about it? We'll just slap a sticker on there that says fair trade. Trust us. The people who are making this, it's fair trade. Don't worry about it. And that's like a way of bending your mind to get around this idea of commodity fetishism Mm -hmm. by just being like oh well they the company solved it for me well done no more commodity fetishism but clearly that's obviously not solving that's like slapping a band-aid on a much bigger problem the bigger problem being um uh this alienation from the actual work our product basically and the products that we consume we have no idea who's making them no idea who's doing what and that's kind of where it gets into these like psychological implications of um what that does to people under a capitalist mode of production which are like so grand that i think potentially not even going to comment on that right mm-hmm. now um there are many basically to say that when you don't have any idea where anything's coming from um you don't know who's producing it uh that does something to you and it does something to you even you know if that's your job if you have a productive job so you know. uh-huh. um there's another quote here which kind of underlies um that argument we were making or i was making about um commodity fetishism not being a peculiar mystification mm. but, a, a, but a, in, a, in actual fact an essential part of the capitalist mode of production mm. he says therefore the relations connecting the labor of one individual with that of the rest appear not as direct social relations between individuals at work mm. but and then the crucial bit as they really are material relations between persons 
i.e. the material relations between people that actually happen in the workplace mm. and social relations between things. And so there's this distinction between um, there is a materiality to the activity of production, which produces the, the use values. Um, but what has come to take the place of what might be um, ethical social relations between individuals in a mm. community of like... Mm. Um, a community of producers, I suppose. Free and equal producers. Free and equal producers, <laughs> as you say. Um, we're only interested instead mm. in the uh, what appear as social relations between things, which yeah. is what you were saying before, like the the fluctuation of, of prices, which are actually have their can have their basis in those material social the sort of the material relations of production. Um, seem to be relationships which um well i suppose like but by, by social relations between things mm. what we mean is what he means perhaps and what i understand him to be saying is that um the only things that actually have any relationality to one another mm -hmm. the only the only social world that counts is the social world that exists between uh commodities as they trade for each other mm. um and we have no interest in the social world of um, human, the relationship between human beings, which is the basis of that yeah. activity. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And I mean, our, our council communist friends would uh, solve this um, through their kind of discussion of the right of disposal, right? Which I don't think I feel like I fully understand enough to fully um, comment on it right now. But suffice it to say that I think that um, the council communists we've been talking about a little bit recently would frame this as an idea of the workers need to have the right of disposal of the commodity that they create or the product that they create. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which you see, like, well, they'd be saying that certainly a lot in this section. Interesting, right at the end, Harvey um, talks a little bit about, like, liberty and about um, this idea of market forces basically determining so much of our lives and to what extent would, like, to what extent can true individual liberty be realized by, you know, some sort of socialist order that gets rid of this idea of commodity fetishism. And I thought that was interesting, just framing it in the idea of liberty, because he's basically making the point that, like, once you think that, you know, it's all just a price point problem, it's all just these commodities interacting with each other, and you don't actually see any of the productive process or anything like that, like, it does take away quite a bit of your liberty. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I have much to comment on that other than that framing this commodity fetishism as like a idea of freedom and of liberty i kind of thought was interesting he really only uses a couple sentences to talk about it right at the end but that idea of like this mystification as like destroying some part of your freedom i thought was really interesting yeah yeah that sort of brings me on nicely to what was in my mind as the next sort of logical step and also um transitioning us into the latter parts of this chat this part where things take a more sort of historical turn, I yeah. suppose. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, because there is... Marx kind of hints at a sort of like... There is a, 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 a historical transition into full capitalism, I suppose, mm. where stemming from this sort of twofold... Uh, well, what he, what he describes as the twofold character of labour, which is the labor which produces the use value and the labor which produces the the value. Sure. Or like the concrete labor and the abstract labor. Um, he sort of seems to describe a historical process whereby 
producers are sort of producing these two types of labor potentially but i suppose initially you can you can imagine a situation where people are producing primarily for use values and then they have a certain surplus and then they they exchange that yeah on mm. the market kind of thing mm. but what he suggests happens is there is this process whereby um we've already come across the idea right uh, the transition to capitalism is the process whereby production is done purely for exchange and no longer for yeah. personal use kind of thing. Mm. Um, so he's talking about even even though producers are, even under, even under full capitalism, as we might describe it, like producers are still concerned with the utility that goes into making the thing because mm -hmm. they still need to produce products of utility. Um, their primary concern, even in the realm of what he's calling like material production or the material relations of production, even in that realm there, what becomes preeminent is actually how much uh, exchange value we're producing in this process kind sure. of thing. So I suppose to some extent, like you could imagine um, coming back to freedom, like mm. there is greater freedom in a process of production whereby all the people who are working in that production are knowingly work, working to produce objects of utility, which either serve their own utility or mm -hmm. the utility of the people who will end up um, using them kind of thing. Sure. Um, they are um, consciously contributing useful products to the total pool of useful products being produced. Mm. And therefore, you can attach some sort of meaning to your labor the labor that you do as it relates to the sort of like total social labor kind of thing in a way which you cannot really do under yeah. capitalism mm. because you have no relationship to the total social labor mm. um, it's only the product the products that you make as products for exchange that have any kind of like connection to a wider uh network of laborers when they are exchanged kind of thing mm. Mm. and um so yeah, I don't know. No, yeah, it's, it, it, that it, might be that's that's the free and equal producers, right? Kind of thing. Yeah, like you, yeah. you produce freely rather than under the constraint of having to produce um, mm. to service the commodity, kind of thing. Service yeah. the wills and whims of the I'm commodity. Kick this commodity's yeah, ass. I know, when right? I see it. God damn I it. I know because it does. Uh, maybe, maybe I take back what I said. <laughs> like um, it does. It does have real material power. It is a real thing. Sure. Yeah. Um, we can blame it for social ills because. <laughs> Um, even if the, even if that is a type of fetishism, um, commodity fetishism is a real material force in our lives. It's, it's not. It's not a. Um, it's not a uh, peculiar mystification of yeah. our brains. Yeah, it is that. But sure, but uh, it's both. Why not? It's, it's dialectic. Both. It's both. It's relational. Folks. It's relational. If yeah. I've learned anything from this, it's, uh, it's all social. Everything's it's a social relation. It's all relational. <laughs> Um, let me just hit you with two sentences real quick about Sorry. now that we're talking about uh, historical processes. Marx says the mode of production in which the product takes the form of a commodity or is produced directly for exchange is the most general and embryonic form of bourgeois production. It therefore makes an appearance at an early date in history, though not in the same predominating and characteristic manner as nowadays, which is it, interesting. I mean, I'm not, not to imply that E.P. Thompson or Ellen Meeksons would do this, but since we've read the kind of origin of capitalism stuff, I've been thinking obviously a lot about the origin of capitalism and about if there is ever like, now it's capitalism. Like, is there a second where you can go, okay, it's capitalism. And any 
obviously, if we want to develop a critique of capitalism, we need to define what capitalism is and perhaps when it started. But it's interesting here him saying, just in those two sentences, which I might be, um, should have perhaps quoted a bit more around it to explain this, but I mean, like, just in those two sentences, he makes it seem, obviously, as much more of a process and a longer process at that, right? The development of capitalism. And he basically, one thing that I found really refreshing was him just basically saying, you know, you can point to things in a mode where you perhaps wouldn't point to it and be like, that's capitalism, but like these are proto-capitalist forms. And it, it made the idea of trying to decide on when capitalism started a lot, um, sit a lot better in my head just because it was defined as a process mm -hmm. and not one of just like an immediate like enclosures. They put a fence around that land, you know what I mean? And so I, yeah, I don't know. I really appreciated thinking of it um, as a process. I didn't expect that to be in the commodity of fetishism. Yeah, it's difficult, that quote, isn't it? I don't, because you, um, maybe it's meant, maybe he is um, sowing the type of ambiguity that you're appreciating to some mm. extent by just saying an early date in history. Exactly, exactly. And it's like been such a big debate ever since then of like, well, when did it happen? <laughs> England's the worst but island it, on the it, planet. But yeah, you are, you are, there, there are sections in this where he's talking about um, other modes of production whereby. Um, I'm going to read the whole thing. <laughs> In the ancient Asiatic and other ancient modes of production, we find that the conversion of products into commodities and therefore the conversion of men into producers of commodities holds a subordinate place. Mm. So he's saying that like commodity production can be seen in other modes of production, sure. um, but it's, it doesn't become the preeminent mode of production. Uh, the, yeah, the, the, it doesn't become the uh, the preeminent goal of mm. productive activity, kind of thing. We've talked about this before, like the, the relationship between. I find it very interesting and compelling, like the relationship between continuity and change, right? Mm. And it's something we're really gonna have to grapple with if we're going to imagine a transition to another mode of production. Like, sure, how much continuity can we bear? Um, and this, uh, this is it's also the essential part, of, the essential reason to analyze capitalism so closely mm. is to work out really which are the what are the innocent which are the totally essential features that we really need to attack straight away mm. and which are the kind of like uh byproducts or which are the sort of supplementary features which we can perhaps tolerate for longer i suppose or how can you develop a really sort of pointed attack um, particularly if you're trying to do something whereby particularly if you're planning like an actual um sort of conscious intervention, what can you plan to do which would be consciously comprehensible, I suppose, by bourgeois subjects, as we all are, mm. um, but also change enough of the essential features to set us on a different path kind of thing? Well, yeah, I mean, I think you make a good point about identifying what needs to be um, attacked straight away in terms of capitalism and what it are like, um, I'm not going to say good things, but what are... You know, like, obviously, we've talked about this in our Council Communism episode about the idea of, like, the level of uh, productivity that capitalism has been able to create and about, you know, Marx believing that the ideas um, about, you know, socialism rising out of that kind of mass productivity, um, what needs to be replaced, what are the real problems that are creating this commodity fetishism, that are creating this kind of alienation, and um, what aren't, I mm -hmm. suppose. Mm -hmm.
I would like to know a bit more. I laughed when he said that Protestantism is the most fitting form of religion for capitalism. Mm-hmm. I'd like to I'd like to know a bit more about what he meant but by Christianity that. in general, I suppose, is what sure. he's saying. Sure, yeah, um, yeah, but he's like Protestantism. Mm-hmm. That's where it's at. I like it as like a it's a sort of almost like a preemptive attack on um, Max Weber. Yeah. <laughs> now I don't really know very much about like. <laughs> Faber, only the basics of like the, the uh, Protestant work, what's it called? The Origins of Capitalism, Protestant, yeah, yeah. Protestant Worth Ethic. Yeah. But like here, Marx seems to be very explicitly saying that these sort of like social mystifications that are religious beliefs are produced as appropriate reflections of the mode of production, not the other way around. Yeah. Like the, I suppose the Weberian suggestion is that like, and maybe Weber's not saying this, maybe a crude understanding of Weber <laughs> would be to say that uh, capitalism came about after yeah. the sort of Protestant work ethic developed, mm. whereas um, <laughs> what an equally crude understanding of Marx and Marxism might say is that Puritanism and Protestantism only have their appeal once the the sort of like transition to the capitalist mode of production is underway, not yeah. the other way around. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, once again, Quakerism, yeah, much like Zinch. Um, what? I'm not going to say the Quakerism oh, is the official relation, the religion of communism. I won't go that far. <laughs> yeah, was there anything else that you wanted board. to cover in We're this uh, in this uh, commodity fetishism? fetishism? idea um relatively simple idea but as with kind of everything in this first chapter um the extrapolations that you can make and the implications of it are uh many yeah <laughs> there are a lot and would you look at that dan i don't know when we started but we finished, finished chapter, one. chapter one we finished Four a chapter episodes holy crap <laughs> yeah so we've read chapter one um of 28 chapters. Oh, no. <laughs> in chapter volume one, of which we've read one. In 20... I feel accomplished. I feel accomplished. I feel accomplished, too. Yeah. It's yeah. more than I've ever read in my, like, I'm going to read Capital. <laughs> so, um, look at us. We did it. We got past the first chapter. Yeah. Chapter two. Very short. It's very short, and it's the process of exchange. And Harvey begins that by saying, it's not only shorter, but it's easier to follow. Whew. <laughs> <laughs> Thank goodness. Uh-huh. Maybe we'll get to it quite quickly, then. Yeah, let's hope so. Uh, we'll get there, folks. Thanks if you are still listening. Thank you. Capital, good stuff. Yeah. That's all I got to say. Yeah, read it yourselves. Yeah, read it yourselves. Well, Lazy bastards. What do we know? Yeah, yeah. Well, you've listened this far, you probably know. <laughs> um, all right, well, I've been Jack. We'll be back with a classic uh, weekly episode for you on Friday. It's going to be a banger. Uh-huh. I'm saying that right Stop now. promising, Jack. <laughs> See you. It'll be good. music you heard this episode was music to kill bad people too by king gizzard and the lizard wizard if you like this song you can check it out and much much more on their Bandcamp at kinggizzard.bandcamp.com be sure and follow us up on instagram twitter and facebook and if you like what you heard be sure and tune in next week for some more comedy discussion till next time